Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23, and we're going to look at the first nine verses. Now, we're just about, not quite, but just about to the point where we're going to fast forward in the book of Exodus, but we've been kind of camping out on some of these case laws because they really show us, they put kind of flesh and blood on the bones of God's law. They help us to understand how God wants us to apply with a lot of nuance, with a lot of practicality, the moral law encompassed in the Ten Commandments. And so it is in these first nine verses of Exodus 23. He says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner, you know the heart of the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved of God the Father in Christ the Son. There's been a lot lately in the media about the courts. A lot that is concerning. The Supreme Court weighed in on the right of Texas to defend its border, ruling that the federal government has the right to remove border defenses that the state has erected in order to protect its people, leading... Many folks to wonder whether they're enforcing law or politics. Likewise, regarding the pro-life activists, the six pro-life activists recently convicted under the Federal FACE Act. These Tennessee residents were charged and convicted of violating this federal law against interfering with abortion clinics, which they did by praying and singing hymns, and begging women not to kill their babies outside an abortion clinic. And they are apt to be sentenced for 10 to 12 years for that crime. Again, leading folks to wonder whether the courts are upholding law and justice or politics. And meanwhile, it seems like the court's often go light on actual criminals. How many defendants avoid trial due to plea bargains that seem far too light for the crime committed? And when they do go to trial and they are convicted, how often don't we see the courts impose relatively minor sentences? As a result, the courts in America increasingly are regarded with skepticism. People express doubt that justice will truly be done. People openly wonder whether victims should seek justice on their own. You see, when justice is not carefully preserved, 
or when the justice system is used as a political weapon, or when the courts are employed to help people with money and power, when justice is not carefully defended, society soon devolves into anarchy and chaos. And such a society cannot bring honor to God. Because the true God is not merely the embodiment of love and grace, but also of justice, he demands that his people cultivate justice alongside of mercy and love. And that's the reason for the text before us this morning. God was preparing his people to enter the land that he had promised them. There they would have to set up a society with all of the structures inherent to to a society, including a system for maintaining and upholding justice. And God knows the temptations that live in the hearts of sinful men. He understands the temptation to use judicial authority selfishly. He recognizes the corrupting power of lies and of bribes. He knows how eager men can be for vengeance. Our God knows the corrosive temptations that can serve to undermine justice. And so here he guides his people away from that temptation while fostering in them an appreciation for justice. And my friends, we today need that instruction just as much as Israel did 3,400 years ago. We need it as a society that has increasingly drifted away from the principles of God's law. And we need it individually that each of us might embrace God's just character. So we do well to consider carefully how the God of justice demands that his disciples cultivate a just society. And that's our theme. The God of justice demands that his disciples cultivate a just society. And that begins in cultivating a society that treasures the truth, which is our first point. This text starts out with an extremely basic principle. You shall not spread a false report. Now notice, he doesn't simply say, don't spread lies. Lies are something we clearly know to be false. But this speaks more broadly. The Hebrew phrase here, Shema Shava, means something that is heard, a report that we hear with our ears, that is empty or worthless or vain. It is a worthless report because you can't confirm whether it is true or because spreading it does nothing to edify the hearer. In Ephesians 4, verse 29, God's people are told, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And a worthless report does none of that. In fact, spreading a false report is wicked because it undermines justice from the start. Without any formal charge of sin being levied without any effort to bring the person, the alleged sinner, to repentance, a false report attacks the man or woman's reputation. Absent any presentation of evidence, a man is convicted in the mind of many hearers as a bad actor. 
Pretty soon when they hear his name, immediately and without cause, they assume he has done something wrong, that he is an immoral person. This person is tried and convicted in the court of public opinion and again without evidence. And folks, we encounter it. You know we do. You hear the whispered warning about that boy or that family or that group. Seldom is the allegation clear or specific. Never does it come with evidence. But the warnings are spoken with urgency because, you know, we have to be careful. We have to protect ourselves. And it's so tempting to spread that report. I mean, people need to know, right? It's for their well-being. But what if it's all a lie? And you say, well, it can't be a lie because I trust the person I heard it from. I know that they're reputable. But what if they got it from somebody that they trust, that they know to be reputable, but they didn't see any evidence either? And what if the person about whom you're spreading that report, they haven't even heard the allegations. They don't even know what they're being charged with. They just know they're being slandered as someone who's not to be trusted. The question for us is, what have I done to verify that report? What evidence have I personally seen? And if I did see evidence, what I do about it? Did I follow Matthew 18? Did I go and seek the soul of my erring brother or sister? And if I did not, well then to spread that report is evil. It is the spreading of a worthless report. And further we're told, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. What's that look like? Might involve testifying falsely in court. That would be clearly wicked. But there are plenty of less obvious ways to commit this sin. When you pass along that rumor without evidence that it is true, you're doing this. You have been a malicious witness in the court of public opinion. And folks, you might not mean to do harm, but you are destroying someone's name, their reputation. And even if you, you just know that they did it, where does God tell you to gossip about it? If your neighbor sinned, confront him. Call him to repent on the basis of the evidence you have seen. And if you can't because you lack evidence, or if you won't because you lack backbone, then be silent. Because down in verse 7, God commands us, keep far from a false charge. Don't just decline to spread the rumor. Keep far from it. Refuse even to listen to that gossip. Rebuke the sweet-voiced tempter who is bringing it to you. Because God commands us in verse 7, Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. You see, God wants His people to delight in justice. He wants us to desire the guilty to be held accountable, to repent, to turn in a new direction. And He wants us to insist that those not proven guilty are defended from lies. But to violate his justice, condemning those who, whose guilt you don't know. Declaring guilt in the absence of evidence. Ignoring justice for the sake of pleasing men. God says he himself will hold you accountable because you're, you're killing that person. Maybe not physically, but 
spiritually, you are killing that person. As the servants of the God of justice, we must learn to treasure the truth because the truth always matters. We serve a God who delights in truth. And therefore, it is never wrong, hear this, young people, it is never wrong to ask for evidence about the things you're told concerning someone else. Will it offend the person whom you ask, the person who's just shared this juicy tidbit with? Yeah, it's going to offend them. So what? If they have evidence, great. You can apologize and you can talk to them about what Matthew 18 involves and how important it is to go to the person who has sinned personally and privately. And if they don't have evidence, if they're just going on the basis of what they've heard, then you have the privilege of walking this sinning brother or sister down the path of repentance and of protecting the name of one who otherwise will be harmed. We, as God's people, are called to treasure and protect the truth and more. We also need to uh, reject this world's myriad temptations to compromise. That's our second point from verses 2 and 8. God's people are to cultivate justice by fostering faithfulness. God gives us this, this significant principle. You shall not... Fall in with the many to do evil. That's a broad statement. To do evil can be something that seems relatively insignificant. Littering. Right? Or it can be a little more significant, like cheating on your taxes. Or much more significant, like rioting or looting. But he's not just warning us to not do evil. He's warning us to not fall in with the crowd, with the many to do evil. That's what nearly all the world was doing in the age of Noah, right? They were all doing the evil that all the world was doing. Likewise, the people of Sodom. God couldn't find even ten people who weren't joining in with the many to do evil. And likewise, what much of our culture is doing. They affirm the lie of evolution. Why? Because so many unbelieving and ungodly scientists say it must be true and they will mock you and they will slander you if you say otherwise. And so many people in our society affirm things that God calls abominations. Homosexuality, transgenderism, why do they affirm that? Why do they say it's, it's good and it's legitimate? Well, it's because if they don't, they know that the many will slander them and call them bigots and say that they're not worthy to be upheld in society. Young people especially recognize just because a multitude of people says something, believes something, or does something that doesn't make it true, that doesn't make it right, it simply makes it popular. And sin has always been popular. And so God is calling us here to care what He says more than we care about what society says or what our friends say or what our culture says. And then he gets specific. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Here the crowd is trying to pervert justice. Perhaps they're urging you to modify what you say in court because the defendant is unpopular. Or perhaps they're urging you to refuse to say what you saw. Deceptively keeping silent. Thing is, if the crowd is doing it, or the crowd demands it, 
It's mighty hard to say no. And yet we must. We must be the ones refusing to follow the crowd because our God is the living standard of justice and He calls us to reflect His justice to a watching world. And that means that that we have to do what's right, we have to do what's just, even if we're the only ones. Even if we're the only ones. Similarly, in verse 8, we're called to refuse a bribe. Now, how is a bribe similar to following the crowd? Well, both are exerting pressure for us to compromise. And the pressure they exert is the pressure of idolatry. The idolatry on the one hand of man, desiring the approval of man, fearing to oppose man. The desire on the other side for money, for gain. Idolatry always leads men to compromise. And so God says, not only must you not fall in with the many to do evil, but you must refuse to take a bribe. He doesn't want us to put a price on our honesty. He doesn't want us to sell out our integrity for a payday. And that implies the negative. If we're unwilling to accept bribes, we must be committed to doing what's right no matter what it costs. No matter what the consequence, God's people must always be honorable. And why is that so crucial? Verse 8, a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Bribes Blind people, thinking about all the good that money could do, a man starts doubting what he saw, remembering how many bills she has. A woman starts questioning the validity of the law itself. The desire to please the one who gave the bribe leads an otherwise trustworthy judge or juror to subtly doubt the conclusions that seemed so clear. I think that's what happens with our Supreme Court and our federal courts. Not that someone's paying them with money. They're paying them with compliments. They're paying them with honor. They're paying them with esteem. And they know they'll lose that bribe if they rule in a way that is displeasing to the elite whose favor they curry. God's people must refuse because not only does a bribe blind the eyes, it twists the words. A man who always speaks clearly the truth suddenly starts to speak in more gray tones because he doesn't want to lose that bribe. He doesn't want to offend the one who possesses what he wants. In effect, bribery cripples the morality, indeed the very soul of a person. And as servants of the God of justice, we must regard faithfulness as non-negotiable and non-purchasable. Whatever, hear this, whatever might lead us to compromise our faithfulness, we must reject. Whether it's money that can pad our bank accounts or societal approval that can pad our pride. We must follow God and do what is right, no matter what it costs. And similarly, we must insist on impartiality. That is, we need to recognize that true justice is blind. It's blind to the situation of the one who is accused, 
and of the one who is the accuser. Because if justice is not blind, then either the wealthy and the powerful can sway justice to suit them, or justice can be swayed out of a disproportionate sympathy for the downtrodden. And so our third point, God's people must insist on impartiality at the start. Now at the start, verse 3, God implies that his people will probably be inclined toward compassion. So he says, you shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now, a poor man here is actually a fairly vague term. It can refer to financial poverty, but it can also refer to one who is poor in terms of influence or social standing or strength or ability or anything. This is a person who is at a disadvantage in some way. And God presumes that his people might be led to show excessive, excessive mercy. And so he warns us, you must not tilt the scales of justice for the poor. Recognizing that he lacks privilege in society, you must not give him extra privilege in the courtroom. The poor man deserves justice, but he doesn't deserve a free pass. But likewise, also on the other end of the spectrum, verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Just as one ought not to flip the scales of justice in order to favor the poor man, neither must you tilt the scales of justice so as to harm him. When the poor man brings a lawsuit, don't ignore him. Don't imply that he doesn't deserve the best defense just because he can't afford to pay the bill. The man's lack of resources or influence ought never to lead us to shortchange the justice due to him. The point here. And I recognize most of us aren't regularly in a courtroom. But the same principle holds in a classroom. The same principle holds around a dinner table. The same principle holds among a group of friends. We all have that friend who's kind of on the outer edge. The one who's the most prone to say the dumb thing or to do the dumb thing the one who tends to be the butt of jokes and we must not pervert justice either on the basis of an excessive feeling of mercy like we're going to try to make up for all the injustice that he's felt by giving him extra privilege or throw him under the bus we need to be impartial when it comes to justice, impartial when it comes to what an individual deserves. And yet at the same time, and here's the balance, justice must not be blind to mercy. And that's the final lesson in this text, and it's central to the whole concept. God's people must cultivate justice by choosing compassion. Now I want you to notice the location of this. All the rest of the points that we've made surround and precede this one. We're called to treasure the truth at the start and almost at the end of our text. We're, we're called to foster faithfulness next and next. Impartiality is addressed close to the center, but not quite there. But then right at the center of our text and also as the very last word are lessons about mercy, lessons about compassion and the importance of it. 
That's significant. That tells us that our justice must not be heartless. Our justice must not be lacking grace. Because our God is the God of justice, but He also is the God of love and mercy. God teaches this lesson, first of all, by means of a couple of examples from livestock. He says that you encounter, you encounter an ox or a donkey. Now, it could just as easily be a sheep, a goat, a chicken. But in making it an ox or a donkey, he sets before us the most valuable livestock. Because these weren't, these weren't just resources, these were tools, Right? Man loses an ox, loses a donkey, it's like a farmer losing a tractor or a significant implement, right? He's, he's losing something significant. This could, for a small farmer, mean absolute devastation. But not only do you find this ox or donkey straying, wandering about, perhaps grazing in your field, you recognize it because its owner is your enemy. Now, you know the temptation in this case. Could, be, could manifest itself in a few different ways. Maybe you ignore the animal. I know whose that is. He can find it on his own, right? Or maybe it's to hide it in that back shed. I know who that belongs to, and it doesn't anymore. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Or, or maybe you think this is the opportunity. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to feed it. And when he comes to look for it, he's going to love that rent bill. But God says, don't do it. Bring it back to him. Treat your enemy the way you would want anyone to treat you if they found your animal. Serve him despite the way he may have mistreated or offended you. And then a similar situation in verse 5. You see a donkey lying down under its burden. Now here's the thing. A donkey can carry a heavy load but they can't get up under a heavy load. Now, we don't know why the donkey's laying down under its burden. You might not know when you come upon it. It might have stumbled. The burden might have been too heavy. The ground might have been unsteady. We don't know. We do know it's going to be a chore to get it back up because you're going to have to unload the pack so that you can take the pack off the struggling animal, all the while trying to calm the animal. You might have to help the animal back to its feet, and then you're going to have to put the pack back on it and reload the pack and maybe even carry some of the stuff. But here's the key. This is a guy you hate. Notice that. It's not just an enemy. It's not someone who hates you. It's someone you I'm sorry, it's not someone that you hate, it's someone who can't stand you. And that makes it even more tempting to pass by, because you can justify it. You can justify it. This guy's having a bad day. I don't want to make it worse. If I show up, And so you can justify walking by. But again, God says, don't. You shall refrain from leaving him with it, you shall rescue it with him. This is a call to do what is right. Even when not only do you not want to, but you think it might even be received badly. My friends, this is massive. I don't know about you, but 
when I know the right thing to do, but I strongly suspect it's going to be received badly, I can find a lot of excuses not to do it. I can be dissuaded very easily. But God says we must not. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Not just those you hate, but even those who persecute you, those who actively do harm to you. You are to love them. You are to care for them. You are to do good to them. Romans 12 takes it even a bit further. There, God leads the apostle to tell us, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And there is nothing easy about that instruction. But God commands it because we have been called and we have been redeemed in order to reflect Him to a watching world. And He only helps those who are unworthy. He only does good things to those who hate Him. If He didn't, no one would be saved. Right? You see, this isn't about livestock, really. The livestock just allow us to understand the lesson. This is about life in the midst of sinful men. Life among people who persecute you in court. Life among people who slander you in public. Life among people who offend you relentlessly. Life in the society of sinners. And God wants us, His people, who have received such astounding mercy from Him to show mercy to them. Even to those who don't deserve it. Even to those who don't desire it. Even to those who hate us. Because that's how we reflect Him. And that includes the way we, we treat strangers. It's the last thing we see here. Verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. Now a sojourner is one who's not from here. Might be a recent immigrant. Might be someone passing through. Might be a homeless person. A vagrant. thing about sojourners is they are different. They don't look like the folks from around here. They don't talk like the folks from around here. They don't understand our practices, our ways. And the temptation can be to be unkind toward them. Maybe overtly cheating them in business deals, using them as political pawns, maybe more passively, just pretending they don't exist. But God says, absolutely not. 
Because Israel knew what it was like to be a sojourner. They had experienced it for 400 plus years in Egypt. They knew the vulnerability. They knew the weakness. They knew the desperation. They knew the desperate need for mercy. And so do we. You understand the plight of the sojourner because you are a sojourner in this world. You live in the midst of a culture that does not understand you. That does not speak like you speak. That does not act like you act. That doesn't value what you value. You are a sojourner because God rescued you. He showed you mercy that was absolutely unmerited. He gave you citizenship and a kingdom and a place to belong. And nothing in you deserved that mercy. Romans 5 verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Ephesians 2, 19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You were distant, a stranger, an enemy, and God drew you near. And now you are called to reflect His compassion toward those whom He sets before you. Might be that co-worker that nobody likes. Might be that neighbor who can't get along with anyone. Might be that family member that drives you absolutely batty. But you know what it's like. You have experienced the mercy they need. And you are called to show it to them. It might come in the context of dealing with the injustice you've suffered. Seek to bring about what is right, but do it with love, do it with compassion as one who has offended countless others yourself. So much more could be said. But here's the upshot. Our God is the God of love and of mercy and of justice. And because He is the God of justice, He demands that we, His disciples, cultivate a just society. Now, if we do that, especially in our current context, it might seem to make absolutely no difference to the society in which we live. doesn't matter. We're called to do it anyway. And when we do, in us, they will see the character of God Himself. Through us, they will encounter the truth, the faithfulness, the fairness, the compassion of God Himself. And with us, brothers and sisters, they will learn to honor God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have not deserved the goodness with which You treated us. And yet, You have loved us, You have rescued us, You have drawn us into the truth. Enable us now, in response, to cultivate justice in our lives, in our sphere of influence, so others in us might recognize Your character. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.